welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. I'm excited that my guest uh, this evening, we're actually recording on, uh, on Monday evening, is Cindy Judge of Sterling Rice Group. Are you the president or the CEO or president and CEO or? I am the president and CEO. That's what I thought, you have both titles. Um, so Cindy, can you, can you tell us a little bit about your background and um, when you came to Sterling Rice and um, a little bit of your, your overall history? So like an example. Sure. Um, well, so so how far back would you like me to start? Do you want me to start with education and then move from there? Whatever you feel is a is a worthy highlight. Is, is worth is minutes. worth talking about. Okay. So um, very briefly, I grew up in Minnesota. Um, I I went to Northwestern University. I actually skipped my senior year of high school and went straight straight on to college. While I was in college, I had some amazing internships, which really kind of uh, helped help steer me in the direction of this industry. I worked on the um, NBC Today show when Jane Polly and Tom Brokaw were still doing that show. So I, was, I worked with them when they came to Chicago to cover the Blanda collection. I was also an assistant producer on the Twin Cities Today show in, in St. Paul, Minneapolis, which was a great job because I was the assistant producer of that show. And I had a chance to meet um, people um, ranging from Mike Love to Dick Van Dyke to John Ehrlichman. So that was very interesting. And then I inter interned at one of the local news stations. But my final internship was at J. Walter Thompson Company. And that's where I really started my career. That was, in, that was before the age of the big holding companies. And at that time, J JWT Chicago was the premier food agency in, in the United States. And um, uh, that our office actually had 900 people at that time. So it was an incredible place to work. I worked, I spent my time there on Uncle Ben's, on Kraft, and on Oscar Mayer. And um, after maybe eight or 10 years, I went to work. Uh, we moved to New York. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't possible for me to work, to live in the city. And so I had to give up my job at J. Walter Thompson, although I, I had planned to transfer. But instead, I went to work for the very first computer graphics company. And so that was very interesting. And we sold that within a year. I, I learned a lot, moved back to Chicago and went back to work for my client, which is Kraft, um, and, and stayed there for four or five years in, in brand management. And then I was off to Italy. My husband and I and our kids took off for Italy, where we spent 12 years. And during that time, I didn't work. Um, I thought, as most people do, that we were leaving for two years. And of course it turned, it turned out to be longer, but it was a wonderful chance to be with my kids and enjoy living in the Italian countryside. We lived in a little hill town in the, in the foothills of the Alps. So it was, it was quite beautiful. Um, when I came back after 12 years, I actually went back to work for Kraft and stayed there for only about a year before SRG came calling. I had been a client of SRG while I'd been at Kraft and and the founder convinced me to join SRG. So that was 17 years ago. And I've been there ever since. And I kind of moved up from being a relationship lead 
uh, to our chief client service officer, and then ultimately to the position I now hold. So that's a little, that's a, the accelerated version. That's great. That's a lot of interesting, interesting background. I thought you were going to be the, the, the host of the Today Show at one point. Well, <laughs> that, I, I have to admit, that was, that, I would have liked that as yeah. a young person. Yeah. So um, to the uninitiated, could you um, give us a little bit of an explanation of what Sterling Rice Group is, how you describe it in a couple of sentences? Absolutely. So, so uh, SRG is both a consulting firm and an advertising agency. We have a very broad range of capabilities that begins with insights, it includes strategy, um, all types of strategy, uh, business strategy, portfolio strategy, design strategy, et cetera. We do innovation, we create, um, we've created hundreds and hundreds of new products. We do a lot of culinary work. We have a full um, culinary group at SRG. We do design work, which includes all manner of design, be it graphic design, experience design. We even do environmental design at SRG, where we um, help bring to life the brand, the brand for our, particularly our food service clients, our restaurant clients, um, with the design for the interior and exterior of their, of their uh, uh, stores. And then we, of course, do advertising. So we have a very broad range of services. We have experts in all these areas, and we've been in these areas for years. We're 34 years old, and, and so we've got deep expertise in all of these areas. Um, what it means for us to have all of these capabilities is that we thoroughly understand the destination of our work. So if we are developing a new brand for a client, we understand the impact that brand may have on, on innovation. We understand the importance of having an eye towards a communication strategy when developing a brand. So it, it's very helpful for us to, to be able to see the destination, to see and appreciate the destination of our work. It also allows us to do what we call abstract invention. And with abstract invention, we can provide a portfolio of asymmetrical um, deliverables based on a common set of insights in what is actually a non-sequential process. And that really means that we can provide all, all kinds of different um, solutions simultaneously. And so when we do that, we're really blurring the lines between um, innovation, design, branding, and advertising. And we're not working in the kind of linear fashion that is typical of the industry. Um, and, and we also don't, and when we work this way, we don't let silos of conventional marketing discipline get in the way of our doing the work. So it allows us to develop um, solutions that have a high level of creative energy and in which the relevancy of each part and each deliverable is elevated. So that's so, about SRG. Um, Pardon me? What would be a good example? I know you have confidentiality agreements with some of your clients, but yeah. what's a good so, example of the type of work you've done or the type of brands you've worked on? Yeah, so so for example, for one of our um, clients in the in the spirits industry, we've we developed um, using this process, we developed um, several new brands, which included um, communication strategies for all of those clients. So we developed the brand, we developed the products, and we developed the communication strategies. And, and, and that was, and, and, you know, when we do that kind of work, we can, um, 
we can move, as I said before, seamlessly from one to the other. But we, in, in delivering all of that in a short period of time, the client has this really robust sense of where an opportunity is headed and what it looks like. So where does the, where does the process begin for you? you know, well, you it begins with an, uh, uh, an understanding of what the client's uh, real needs are. So they, they will often come to us with um, an identification of, of, of what they think they need. Through a conversation with them, we will work with them to assess what is really needed and maybe exactly what they, they set out for, or it may be bro a broader range of things that they really need but didn't realize could be done at the same time. Usually clients are delighted when they understand that we can do, we can take on these things um, at the same time and they, will, and they have a, they can foresee that the entire process is going to take less time, but also that they're going to be able to work simultaneously across deliverables, which obviously yield stronger results for each of those deliverables. More, a much more coherent, um, uh, branding, if you will. So what percentage of, of the company's business is, is uh, packaged goods, alcohol, and restaurants? What percent is, is packaged goods, alcohol, and restaurants? Yeah. Um, in, in excess of 70%. Yeah. So you're really, you're, you're really focused in on that, on that space, well, food and drink. We, we, we are real experts in the, in the restaurant world, in the, in, in the CPG world, um, food as well as other non-food CPG products. But I, I, we do uh, also do work in uh, pharma. We do work in automotive. We've done work in the financial services space. We've done work in airlines. We do a lot of work in retail, um, you know, across the board. So, you know, it, it just depends. Now, when I say 70% of our work is, is in those areas, Obviously, this year food surface is down, um, but not gone for us, right? On the other hand, retail is way up, so it just depends on on the year. Yeah. So you said you have culinary expertise, or culinary. We do. What does that mean, literally? What? Well, what, what that means is kitchen? that we have a full. Oh, chef? I'm sorry. Does that mean you have a kitchen and a chef and stuff? Well, it means we have a couple of kitchens and a group of chefs. Um, we have a group of chefs in house. And we have a, a culinary council of over 200 chefs, um, restaurateurs, authors, editors all around the globe that we work that we work with. And what we do at SRG is we do a lot of trend work, obviously a lot of sort of strategic work surrounding food, but we also are very hands-on. We create protocepts for our clients. So oftentimes if we're developing new products, we will actually have our chefs on site who are protocepting as we go. And then we're, we're very often bringing consumers into that mix. So we're inventing ideas, we're protocepting, and we're getting real-time feedback from consumers at the same time. We can actually, with our culinary group, take, um, we can take ideas to a pre-commercial um, stage, which is obviously very helpful for our clients. Sometimes we actually, um, we actually uh, bring, their chefs into our, our kitchens. Our, we have a full commercial kitchen and we can add equipment to our lines. So we bring them into our kitchens. Um, and we, what we're doing right now during the era of COVID where it's difficult to get people together, we are actually doing a lot of video, culinary work um, via video. 
So we're designing the protocepts again, real time. We're just not physically present. And then we're actually capturing a lot of that on video so it can be shared. It's very exciting. It's a very exciting way to do work. And we're doing that all over the globe. So is, is, that, is that work mainly for packaged goods or is it restaurant menu items or how does it, where do you focus? When we do that kind of culinary development, yeah, if, if restaurant items, it can also be um, uh, uh, CPG food, yeah. for example, yeah. and, and beverage, as well as, you know, uh, spirits. So do, does anyone say, well, it's all very well you making this in the kitchen when you've got to go to commercial scale and you've got to make millions of these things? You're talking about a totally different proposition. Well, of course, we use commercial ingredients okay. and our, our chefs are trained and, you know, um, we have... We have chefs who have food service backgrounds and institutional backgrounds and that sort of thing. So, so we are very aware of the, the um, practicality of taking a recipe to a commercial, um, you know, a, 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 a commercial option. Yeah. So what, what, what are people, what are your clients looking for right now? Are they assuming the vaccine, assuming things are going to go back to normal by the end of 2021 and Restaurants are going to be open again, or what, what are they? What are they thinking right now? Well, it, it, specifically with regard to restaurants. Yeah, because that's such a big part of your business. Yeah. Because yes. So what? What? So it's interesting to see what our clients are thinking right now. I mean, obviously, um, there's obviously the the restaurant industry is having a very difficult year, right? It's very interesting for us because, you know, at what we see in in the consumer work that we do, as I said, we do a lot of insight work. And regardless of the category that we're in, when we ask consumers, what do they miss the most right now in, in this time of COVID? What we hear most frequently is they really miss going to restaurants. So, so at SRG, we believe that, the, that, that there will be a return, uh, um, you know, there will be a demand for restaurants in the future. But but what we believe is that things are going to have to change. And um, you know, I, what, what is likely to change uh, in restaurants involves the fundamental way they do business, right? So it involves the footprint of the stores, it involves the capacity or density, how many people can be in the stores. It, food safety issues are going to be an important piece of that, which obviously will affect the menus. I had a client say to me not, not too long ago that for the first time in her many years in the restaurant industry, clean Trump's taste. And that's a, a pretty powerful statement. So food safety will be a, a very important part of the future. Also, I think what we'll see in the future is we'll see, uh, we'll see a bundling of concepts and we may even see a bundling of concepts of different types, right? So we may see a um, like a smoothie bar next to a, a gym, a gym, for example. I think we, we may also see a, um, some retail mixed into all of that. So I think that the footprint of the restaurant in the future is going to look quite different. And I think that our clients are beginning are, are certainly seeing the need to make widespread change um, with with regard to their ability to serve the public in the future. Mm, that's interesting. One of the things that struck me was the um, pandemic has really exposed, I mean, the idea that you could get away with mediocre food at a restaurant because you had an atmosphere 
So you have something like Buffalo Wild Wings. Well, no one's going there anymore because you can't go there. And their, their whole cell was their atmosphere. Uh, and so surely if you're going to survive right now, there's more, there's more of a focus on food than there's ever been. And if, you, if you've just got substandard Italian Olive Garden, who's going to buy that? when you can get better Italian food from anywhere. And now Olive Garden is one of your clients. I hope it isn't. <laughs> well, we are not working with Olive Garden right now, although we have in the, in the past. Um, uh, we, we have proudly worked for Olive Garden in the past. Um, but, but I think that there is a focus on food and there's a love for food and there's a- Chili's, you know. The, yeah. the world they got America has way too many of these mediocre restaurant brands that just are all the same. Most Americans wouldn't care if three of them went away. <laughs> um, I think, and, and we have a lot of restaurants that are experiencing are experimenting and really pushing the boundaries as well, right? So there is yeah. there's a real desire in the food service industry to continually invent and. Um, to, um, to, to deliver a really great experience to their, to their patrons. So, so while certainly there are, like in, in any industry, there, there are um, concepts that may disappoint or concepts that you may, may find mediocre, there are also a lot of, a lot of uh, places that are really working to, to really meet the, the changing demands of their guests. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What are you when you go out and talk to consumers right now? What are you hearing from the consumer? What are you What are you hearing in your in your interviews and your research? And your, what are they What are they looking for? I mean, it's been said that most Americans don't know how to cook, but they've learned in the last nine months. So, what are they looking for in in terms? Well, they said. I mean, nine months ago, most Americans didn't know how to cook a meal because they never had. To. Yeah. Well, it's been what's been amazing about um, this this time in COVID is to see how people's behavior around food has changed. You know, the, the um, and, it, and it, it centers around people eating at home, right? And it, and it centers, and, and that anchors people in a common experience in, in a family, which really begins to change the dynamics of the family. It begins to change values. It begins to change how, how uh, children interact. It, 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 it has, it has profound effect on not only the foods they choose, but the way that families view their relationships and the way the ways they interact. It is. It's been really interesting for us to see the um, the value uh, consumers are putting on that, the desire for that to continue in the future, the hope that they don't go back to a frantic, frantic way of life. You know, one of the things I always loved about living in Italy and, and raising my family in Italy was that in Italy, everything stops at dinner, right? You don't go back out after dinner. There's not, a, there's not practices, there's not PTA meetings. There's not a reason to go back out. The kids eat with you at eight o'clock and then they go to bed and that's, that's, the end of, that's the end of it. And there's something really wonderful about that in the Italian culture that that makes for strong families. And I think that, in the, that this time in the United States has lent itself to more of that over the last few years. 
or the last few months, excuse me. Yeah, do, do you think that's something that's going to stick and, and stay? I mean, because- To a know, certain people, extent, yes. I, I, do. I, I don't think we'll go back to the same level of, um, of you know, crazy schedules that we, we had before. Well, we've got sort of crazy, I mean, it's weird. We've got crazy schedules now because people don't even know what the difference between a Monday and a Sunday is. Uh, they're all blurring together and, you know, there's so much going on, but you still have got the reality that people are sort of stuck at home and if they're going to eat, they're going to eat together. So, yeah, I, I guess the commute time is the thing that we've lost. You know, that, that's gone away. If that comes back, that changes. You know, suddenly you've got, I don't know what the average American commute is, but I would assume it's somewhere an hour, an hour each way. Um, so you've got two hours of every day that's being consumed by getting to the office when it could be used for other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, it, it, but beyond the commute, family life is changing a lot, right? So, so that people don't have the commute anymore. They have some, they're, you know, they, they have fewer um, scheduled activities for children. In many cases, children are being schooled at home. They don't have the option of outside entertainment, so people aren't going to do that. So, so kind of the nature of the day is, has, has changed dramatically. And I think, it, I think this is going to result in changes that are, are permanent in some ways. I don't think we want to stay, I don't think people want to stay, keep things as they are now forever, but I think elements of this will endure, including more time at the table, more home-cooked meals. Yeah. So, and more, and more takeout and delivery. So do you find your clients look to you for inspiration? So that, that you know, they've, you're part of the Google Food Lab, you've got a culinary, I can't remember what you called it, but like 200 experts. Yes. Um, is this something that you, um, you do, how do you present this, 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 this information? Is it, is it sort of like a newsletter or do you get people in a room and- Well, a lot of times clients- yeah, so, so a lot of times clients hire us um, to, to help them, for example, imagine the future. So a lot of the work that we're, we're doing right now with our clients is, is trying to help them um, understand uh, what's changing in the world, what, what is likely to endure, and, and to sort out how well um, equipped they are to succeed in the future. So... so you know, we spend a lot of time right now trying to understand the consumer of the future and the world of the future. And, um, and, and in the course of that, hopefully we are quite inspiring. They, they also hire us many times to help develop strategies uh, for, for the future, uh, innovation strategy, portfolio strategy, develop new products, um, develop new brands. Those are the kinds, of, that's the kind of inspiration they look to us for. In terms of public um, things, you know, when you're talking about inspiring, yes, we we are often we are often published in various magazines, um, and and so there is there is a public aspect to this. But um, for the most part, I would say our clients hire us for the purpose of strategic, forward thinking, and inspiration, as well as very concrete deliverables around innovation strategy. 
branding, design, communications. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've come from the world of advertising. I've spent three decades yeah. working in a bunch of different agencies and some of the biggest in the world. And I've had, I've worked with some of the biggest food brands like Unilever and Nestle and yeah. uh, others. And, you know, I know there are people in those, inside those organizations uh, and back when I was working there who would want their agency or their trend partner or whatever to take them to Paris or to take them to Rome or yeah. to take them, take them to Tokyo yes. and, and plan an inspirational. Yes, tour. absolutely. Yeah. Is that something? Yeah, we do that sort of thing all over the world regularly with our clients. Now with COVID, we have to do that, that we have to do it virtually, yeah. but. For years, we've been um, trotting around the globe doing doing exactly that sort of thing. Yeah, so that's, that's really fascinating. So, yeah. you know, obviously one of the big one of the big themes that's been going on for the past decade is cleaning up food. Um, you know, you know, sort of Americans have been eating some pretty pretty poor stuff. You know, there's a ton of preservatives, there's a ton of artificial this and that, and you've got most of most of CPG has spent the last five, 10 years trying to clean it up, trying to naturalize it, try to organic, ganicize it or whatever you want to call that word, inventing that word. Is that something that's been done? Are we done with that? Or is there more to do? Or do consumers want more of it? Or how, where is that at? That whole cleaning up yeah. of, of food? Your, your question is, um, is, is this movement towards sort of cleaner food, more sustainable food, healthier food. Is yeah. that over? That's, that's the gist of your question, correct? Yeah, are we, are we, there, are we there yet? Are we still got a long way to go. I, I, think that, I, I, I think that both from a consumer standpoint and an industry standpoint, point, that, work, that work goes on. And that work goes on with, with a high degree of purpose. So we are seeing um, consumers more interested than ever in a, um, in a world in which, in a world that is more sustainable and specifically in food that is more sustainable. And we're seeing the um, industry share, share that vision and work towards the vision of a, of a more sustainable food system overall. Mm -hmm. Do you think people really understand at, at a client level what is required? You know, like whether it's climate change goals or, or, or I mean, there's, there's, there's greenwashing, the sustainability washing, which is more like a sort of a, a backdrop to kind of convince the consumer that you're doing the right things. And then there's real goals. And, um, you know, there seems do to I, be this- Do this I think that they understand what, what, it, what it takes? Yes, I think they understand what it takes. I think they understand very well what it takes um, in, in that, you know, they, they they're, 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 they're assessing the economic impact of all of it. So, you know, I, I think that the clients that we work with for the most part are very interested in um, helping to contribute to a more sustainable world. And, um, and I have a lot of optimism with regard to the future in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I... Yeah, I mean, Unilever is a great example. Unilever, you mentioned before, I think yeah. Unilever has embraced that that mission. Yeah, I mean, they're one of the, to be honest, they're one of a few. There aren't, yeah. there aren't, there, there is only, you know, 
you keep you got you go to Unilever, you go to Patagonia, you go to, to some other small players, and you sort of soon run out after you've gone through seven or eight fingers on both hands. And um, yeah, it's a Danone is another one that's quite interesting. Um, yeah, they're doing some interesting work. They're actually, I think they're the largest certified B Corp in the world, um, which is pretty amazing considering those those standards are pretty high. Um, yeah, I'm interested. You know, it, it's you know, there's a lot of talk about the sort of new millennial consumer and these new, smaller, healthier, more tasty brands that emerged and these companies who went out and got venture capital or equity funding and, right. um, you know, really started snapping the heels of some of those big brands. They were just seen as more interesting, more flavorful, uh, mm -hmm. healthier. And, um, you know, what we're hearing right now is in the pandemic, um, consumers are sort of flocking to safety and security. They're going sort of back to the bigger brands that were earlier under assault from the from the smaller brands. I don't know what you, I don't know what your take on that is. Well, I mean, I, I think we're we're what we're seeing is um, we are certainly seeing a return to familiar brands and center. The center of the store has thrived during COVID, right? It's absolutely thrived. And familiar, familiarity and comfort have been a big part of the pandemic experience. I think what that means for those brands is that they have reignited the buyer base. In, in most cases, these are um, consumers who love these brands um, previously and have returned to, the, to these brands um, dur during COVID. I think there is certainly, there's, that is, that is good news for those brands and the manufacturers of those brands because um, some of that behavior will endure. The experimentation though around smaller, um, more niche, some, in some cases more purpose uh, driven brands, I believe that experimentation will also continue. And I think that, um, that, that in the future, they will, you know, as, as um, consumers navigate lots of different channels in terms of online shopping, there will be um, a certain amount of alignment between the channels they shop and the types of brands they buy and the types of brands they experiment with. And so I think that there will continue to be growth in, in these smaller, more niche and more purpose-driven brands. And at the same time, I think that there has been a positive impact on large uh, center of the store brands that that offer familiarity and comfort. Maybe one of the challenges you guys face is, um, you know, you've got we've gone from a culture where cultures, corporate cultures, where there was strong R and D budgets and there was a strong desire to develop NPD, new products in house, um, versus M and A. And now you've got a bunch of people who are saying inside these big companies, why should we develop? something new when we can go out and buy a small company that's been spending, spent the last three years doing what we want to do right. and, and have developed a brand. Do you face those kind of questions ever? Have you seen? Oh, all, all the time I, I, I face those kinds of questions. And, you know, I've spoken um, in, in various clients' boards, board meetings to, to that exact question of, you know, buy or build, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but keep in mind, a lot of those small brands, um, go into business with the goal 
of being purchased by, you know, by a large company. So for those small brands, that, that is a part of their success story, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think acquisition can be a great strategy at times and it, and it helps to fuel this industry, right? Um, there are other times when building a brand is, is a very appropriate strategy and can take, you know, can, um, especially if building that brand is aligned with a company's skills and assets, then building that brand can be an excellent strategy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think we've learned over time um, has been, you know, and I've worked on, I've worked on a few of these, um, is if you're, a, if you're a large corporate entity, you've got to be very careful with those acquisitions because yes. it, does, it doesn't take long to destroy whatever right. that company is built by bringing your same corporate um, standards and expectations and processes and Right, right. Absolutely. And I think we all look to Ben and Jerry's, for example, um, as, as maybe the right way to do this, to, to, to let a brand, to let a brand be and yeah. let it, let it keep its DNA, its reason for being, let it continue to serve the customers it's always served, let it, let it continue to grow its footprint in the way um, that is natural to that brand. Yeah, exactly. So, um, where, where do you, what do you see for 2021? What, what do, now we know we have like, I think there's now three, is there three companies with vaccines ranging from a 90 to 95% success yeah. rate? Yeah. Um, so we, we, we've, we've got vaccines, although there's um, only a 1% chance of death from, from COVID, I believe. It's a one, a statistical, probability of the average American adult um, dying from COVID is about 1% right now. Um, so we'll have, we'll have 0% when we have the vaccine, if, if people take it, that is, of course. So are you, are you being asked by clients to sort of plan timing scenarios at all? Are they being, like, when do you think, you know, what, because, I mean, people have, people have to plan, right? They have to, they have to try and, and make some plans as to when these restaurants are going to open or when people are going to come back. And uh, is that a question you're getting asked? Because I know a lot of agencies are getting asked this. They, you know, people want to plan their marketing ahead and they don't really necessarily know how to yeah. plan without creating some scenarios. Yeah, I mean, I, they're, they're not necessarily asking us when will this happen because I think a lot of our clients have a really good handle on on the dynamics in the industry and are, and are thinking a lot about that, but they are asking us, how do we, what should we look like as things get back to normal, right? So, so, um, so, th so that's the question we're being asked right now. Oh yeah, how should we appear? I mean, what would, yeah, how, how do we show up in, yeah. a lot of people use this post COVID um, term but it, a lot of people are saying, how do we show up in a post-COVID world? And, and that's the kind of thing that we're helping our clients with at this stage. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that, it's, that's very hard to ascertain. You, you know, 
in some ways, there's never been a better time to talk to people like from, from a consumer perspective, but there's never been a worse time either in a way. I mean, how do you know what anyone is telling you right now is informed by any kind of insight? I mean, people are just come through a crazy election. Um, they're, you know, cooped up in their homes that they're exhausted over. They're educating their kids and doing a gazillion things, trying to keep their jobs because they're worried about losing them. I, you know, it's like, how do you know anything anyone tells you right now is has got any focus or foresight into the future um, based on how crazy and chaotic people's lives are? It doesn't, I, I just really wonder whether it's an accurate I mean, we know from the polls that the polls got it wrong. Um, you know, that they, they, people just weren't prepared to tell the truth and um, didn't want to tell the truth, didn't want to even talk to researchers. Um, mm -hmm. so it seems like, you know, there's a lot of call for get out and find out what's going on, but it's extremely hard, I think, to, to find out what yeah. really is happening. Yeah. How people really feel. Yeah, well, I think, you know, what we're doing to try to get a strong handle on um, what people are telling us and, and its sort of validity going forward is we're, we're trying to go deep in our conversations with consumers to understand sort of what, what fundamentals, what fundamental um, values, what fundamental tensions surround their beliefs. And that helps us to, to better understand how they're reacting to the current situation and to have a better sense for how they may behave in the future. Mm -hmm. So what does that entail? Does that entail talking to people for longer or doing things differently? How, how do you get that type yeah, of- Yeah, it, it, it entails one-on-one -on -one conversations you know, ethnographies, which obviously we're doing all of that virtually right now. Yeah. Um, it, we can we can work with this, you know, we can do this um, quantitatively, but really understanding fundamental um, human values, fundamental human tensions, and being able to um, apply those to a situation, to a question, to a, um, to, to a, uh, a, a sense, or a story that, that relates to the future, that I think is very helpful in terms of trying to understand is, is should, should I take this seriously? Is, is, is this predictive on some level of how this consumer is likely to behave in the future? If, you, if anyone wanted to be inspired, like I'm, I'm looking to you as, 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 to give me some sources um as in brilliant people who you turn to who, who know what's going on whether that's a food writer or whether that's a restaurateur that's breaking the mold i mean people listening to this show who would be like you know what does cindy think you know who, who should i be reading what uh what podcast should i be listening to is there a great book that i should be reading um Anything that's on your radar screen or something that you read that has been, you know, you, you, you sent it off in an email to a client because it was, it was so moving or 
motivating to you. You're like, everyone has to read this now. It's amazing. Anything, anything that you can uh, point to that you've, the last few months, has anything struck you? I heard Tom um, Calicchio speak. And yeah. he's a famous chef from the Gramercy Tavern. And he talked about the state of the restaurant industry. And he talked a lot about fear of the, you know, the number of restaurants that, that may be closed by the end of the first quarter. Talked a lot about what's, what's going on, for example, um, with regard to um, uh, uh, the, the workers, restaurant ownership, et cetera. And I, I think that's, that's really, really interesting. Also, um, you know, someone who I look to that I find really interesting, um, John Foraker, who obviously was one of the uh, people um, at, at Annie's who developed that brand and, and really speaks, speaks, to, um, speaks to a lot of important, um, important developments in the world of, of food. Yeah. It's also been really, it's, it's just been really interesting to understand sort of larger issues that relate to social justice and um, the food system, agriculture, et cetera. So, you know, I, I guess I find that I am highly inspired by sort of a, this, this group of people and, and, the, and the thinking. Um, just trying to think how we should, um, how we should, how we should close. You had you had asked me the about um, food in Italy versus food in America. Yeah, is that something that that you'd be interested in hearing my observations on? Yeah, I think we touched a little bit upon it. You know, in the sense that you, you were talking about comparing, you know, the importance of like life stops around dinner, and then comparing it a little bit to what we're seeing here with the pandemic and the emphasis on on food as a sort of a family, a central gathering place. But yeah, please, please share. Just a few things that, you know, I, I thought, I mean, there are some really basic differences between the way the, the role that food plays in, in, in the lives of Italians versus the lives of Americans. And I think one of the basic differences is that Americans put their loyalty to country above loyalty to a state or, or a town. But it's just the reverse in Italy. Um, Italians rarely profess a sense of national pride, except like, if one of their teams is in is in the World Cup. You know, after all, Italy wasn't even a country until you know very, very, um, very recently um, in in the order of history, right? Um, so in Italy, the first the first level of loyalty is to one's hometown, and every hometown not only has its own dialect, but it has its own food specialties. And those are fiercely defended from, from town to town. And I also saw another difference I saw is that Americans really love local and Americans love fresh, um, but Americans shop once a week or so at large supermarkets. In, in Italy, people shop every day for bread, for focaccia, for produce, for meat, right? Um, and, and meals are actually invented on the spot based on what they can find that day. So creativity is at play um, instantly. Um, in my little village that I lived in, which, you know, this little village in the foothills of the Alps, um, one of the shopkeepers said to me one day that she gives a little friendship with every purchase. 
which I thought was a very endearing uh, thing. And I think, you know, there's, there's also a different thinking of the role of food. There's a different respect for food. You know, in, in Italy, when you come back for vacation, people don't, the first question you're asked is not, how was your vacation? But rather, did you eat well? That's the, you know, it's the, the, the and, and then that's, that's the significance of it in their lives. And then I think the last point I wanted to make is that there is a fundamental knowledge about food and ag agriculture in Italy. Children understand and appreciate the seasons in Italy. It's actually part of the school curriculum. And, and that's reflected in shelf-stable goods. So shelf-stable goods reflect the seasons and, and products are changed out to reflect the seasons. So for example, shelf-stable shelf, shelf juice is apple in the fall, it's kiwi in the winter, it's strawberry um, and, and peach and apricot in the early spring, it's pear in, in, the, in the late spring, early fall. So that knowledge and celebration of seasons is so very, very different. And the basic fundamental knowledge of agriculture matters. And I, I guess actually the last thing I wanted to say with regard to food in Italy is, and this relates to the, to the conversation we had previously, is that the table still matters in Italy in a way that's been very different in the last 20, 20 years or so in America. All meals in Italy are eaten at the table, including snacks, including children's snacks. And, and I think that reflects the way meals as rituals are cherished um, in Italian life. So, you know, that I guess to me, those are significant differences between Italy and the US in terms of, of attitudes towards food. It could go on. I think. I think. I think it's. I think it's structural. It, 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 the whole country is organized around life before work, and yes. Um, and then if you have the flip flop here, which is work comes first, then food's going to come way down the pegging order. Food's going to be fuel to help you work, and therefore it's going to have a utilitarian versus an emotional functionality. Uh, you know, it's just, it's a big country. People, there's a lot of people to feed. It's been an, a rapid industrialization of agriculture and feeding America. And it's kind of the opposite. I mean, there's, a, there's an American author called Bill Bruford. Bill Bruford. Yeah. Who is a 58 year old, 60 year old guy who decided to go well, his first expedition was to Italy to become an Italian chef. And then he's just come back from Lyon where he's become a French chef. And he's, <laughs> so, so he's become an intern in a restaurant in his sixties. Yes, I think, I, yes, I've read something. Yeah. About so this. In, his, in his first book, he talks about, I thought pasta was something that came out of a packet and even in a fine Italian restaurant, they probably wouldn't make it. But then I got sent down to the place where you bought eggs in the village. And that was the same place that they'd been buying eggs from because the, the, the restaurant was six generations old and the, they'd been buying eggs from the same place for the same six generations. And he had to go and buy dozens of eggs because he was gonna make tagliatelle with fresh eggs, which he didn't really understand why, what, what that was. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a whole different. It's a whole different. Um, it's a whole different set of codes 
But, you know, um, I'm watching Panera Bread commercials um, when they're talking about the, uh, uh, the magnificent pizza that they're making at Panera Bread. And um, I think they've got some Italian envy over there. Um, they talk about the finest and freshest ingredients. Um, yeah. So there's, um, yeah, there's a, you know, we've definitely got a change of folk. I think we've got a long way to go between, you know, catching European culture, culture, but um, certainly continental Europe. I wouldn't include England because that's yeah. a, that has been a culinary desert for a while. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely. I think I think things things are changing, and um, you know, there. So sometimes you get surprised when you hear that, you know, the biggest retailer of all organic produce is Walmart. You know, that sometimes becomes a surprising statistic. You know. I didn't hear the. the last well, it's very surprising to hear that Walmart is the largest uh, retailer of organic produce in the country. Right, right. Isn't it? And isn't that something? Yeah. So things are. And they and they forced a movement around yeah. organic and around natural foods. I mean, they forced other retailers to to follow suit. Yeah, absolutely. Which is amazing. Yeah. So things are things are changing. We've got a long way to go before it becomes Italy. Um, but it is moving. It is moving in a healthier, more natural direction. I think. Anyway. Yeah. Thank you very much for for your time and 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 uh, the conversation. I really enjoyed it. This is your host Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.